Chapter Eleven of Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Michael McBride. His day is closing. The long night of dreamless rest a dusky shadow throws between the dying and the things of earth, enfolding in a chill oblivious pall the last sad struggles of a broken heart. Yes, ere the rising of to-morrow's sun, the bitter grief that brought him to this pass will be forgotten in the sleep of death. We left Kingston at three o'clock p.m. in the passport for Toronto. From her commander, Captain Towie, a fine British heart of oak, we received the kindest attention. His intelligent conversation and interesting descriptions of the many lands he had visited during a long acquaintance with the sea greatly lightening the tedium of the voyage. When once fairly afloat on the broad blue inland sea of Ontario, you soon lose sight of the shores, and could imagine yourself sailing on a calm day on the wide ocean. There is something, however, wanting to complete the deception, the invigorating freshness, the peculiar smell of the salt water that is so exhilarating and which produces a sensation of freedom and power that is never experienced on these freshwater lakes. They want the depth, the fullness, the grandeur of the ocean, though the wide expanse of water and sky are, in all other respects, the same. The boat seldom touches at any place before she reaches Coburg, which is generally at night. We stopped a short time at the wharf to put passengers and freight on shore, and to receive fresh passengers and freight in return. The sight of this town, which I had not seen for many years, recalled forcibly to my mind a melancholy scene in which I chanced to be an actor. I will relate it here. When we first arrived in Canada, in 1832, we remained for three weeks at a hotel in this town, though at that period it was a place of much less importance than it is at present, deserving little more than the name of a pretty rising village, pleasantly situated on the shores of Lake Ontario. The rapid improvement of the country has converted Coburg into a thriving, populous town, and it has trebled its population during the lapse of twenty years. A residence in a house of public entertainment, to those who have been accustomed to the quiet retirement of a country life, is always unpleasant, and to strangers as we were, in a foreign land, it was doubly repugnant to our feelings. In spite of all my wise resolutions not to give way to despondency, but to battle bravely against the change in my circumstances, I found myself daily yielding up my whole heart and soul to that worst of all maladies, homesickness. It was during these hours of loneliness and dejection, while my husband was absent, examining farms in the neighborhoods, that I had the good fortune to form an acquaintance with Mrs. C., a Canadian lady who boarded with her husband in the same hotel. My new friend was a young woman, agreeable in person, and perfectly unaffected in her manners, which were remarkably frank and kind. Hers was the first friendly face I had seen in the colony, and it will ever be remembered by me with affection and respect. 
One afternoon, while alone in my chambers, getting my baby, a little girl of six months old, to sleep, and thinking many sad thoughts, and shedding some bitter tears for the loss of the dear country and friends I had left for ever. A slight tap at the door roused me from my painful reveries, and Mrs. C. entered the room. Like most of the Canadian women, my friend was small of stature, slight and delicately formed, and dressed with the smartness and neatness so characteristic of the females of this continent, who, if they lack some of the accomplishments of English women, far surpass them in their taste in dress, their choice of colours, and the graceful and becoming manner in which they wear their clothes. If my young friend had a weakness, it was on this point, but as her husband was engaged in a lucrative mercantile business, and they had no family, it was certainly excusable. At this moment her pretty neat little figure was a welcome and interesting object to the homesick emigrant. "'What, always in tears?' said she, carefully closing the door. "'What pleasure it would give me to see you more cheerful. This constant repining will never do.' "'The sight of you has made me feel better already,' said I, wiping my eyes and trying to force a smile. M is away on a farm-hunting expedition, and I have been alone all day. Can you wonder, then, that I am so depressed? Memory is my worst companion, for by constantly recalling scenes of past happiness she renders me discontented with the present and hopeless of the future, and it will require all your kind sympathy to reconcile me to Canada.' "'You will like it better. By and by, a new country always improves upon acquaintance.' "'Ah, never. Did I only consult my own feelings, I would be off by the next steamboat for England. But then my husband, my child, are scanty means.' "'Yes, yes, I must submit. But I find it a hard task.' "'We all have our trials, Mrs. M. And to tell you the truth, I do not feel in the best spirits myself this afternoon.' I came to ask you what I am certain you will consider a strange question. This was said in a tone so unusually serious that I looked up from the cradle in surprise, which her solemn aspect and pale, tearful face did not tend to diminish. Before I could ask the cause of her dejection, she added quickly, Dare you read a chapter from the Bible to a dying man? Dare I? Yes, certainly. Who is ill? Who is dying? It is a sad story, she continued, wiping the tears from her kind eyes. I will tell you, however, what I know of it, just to satisfy you as to the propriety of my request. There is a poor young man in this house who is very sick, dying, I believe of consumption. He came here about three weeks ago, without food, without money, and in a dreadfully emaciated state. He took our good landlord, Mr. S., on one side, and told him how he was situated, and begged that he would give him something to eat and a night's lodging, promising that if he ever was restored to health, he would repay the debt in work. You know what a kind, humane man Mr. S. is, although, she added with a sly smile, he is a Yankee, and so am I, by right of parentage, though not of birth. Mr. S. saw at a glance that the suppliant was an object of real charity, and instantly complied with his request. Without asking further particulars, he gave him a good bed, sent him up a bowl of hot soup, and bade him not to distress himself about the future, but try and get a good night's rest. 
The next day the young man was too ill to leave his chamber. Mr. S. sent for old Dr. Morton, who, after examining the lad, informed his employer that he was in the last stage of consumption, and had not many days to live, and it would be advisable for Mr. S. to have him removed to the hospital, a pitiful shed erected for emigrants who may chance to arrive ill with the cholera. Mr. S. not only refused to send the young man away, but has nursed him with the greatest care, his wife and daughters taking it by turns to sit up nightly with the poor patient. My friend said nothing about her own attendance on the invalid, which, afterwards, I learned from Mrs. S., had been unremitting. "'And what account does the lad give of himself?' said I. "'All we know about him is that his name is MacBride, Michael MacBride.' Michael MacBride was not the name of this poor young man, but is one substituted by the author, and that he is nephew to Mr. C. of Peterborough, an Irishman by birth, and a Catholic by religion. Some violent altercation took place between him and his uncle a short time ago, which induced Michael to leave his house, and look out for a situation for himself. Hearing that his parents had arrived in this country, and were on their way to Peterborough, he came down as far as Coburg in the hope of meeting them, when his steps were arrested by poverty and sickness on this threshold. By a singular coincidence, his mother came to the hotel yesterday evening to inquire the way to Peterborough, and Mr. S. found out from her conversation that she was the mother of the poor lad, and he instantly conducted her to the bedside of her son. I was sitting with him when the interview between him and his mother took place, and I assure you that it was almost too much for my nerves. His joy and gratitude were so great at once more beholding his parent, while the grief and distraction of the poor woman on seeing him in a dying state was agonizing, and she gave vent to her feelings in uttering the most hearty curses against the country, and the persons who by their unkindness had been the cause of his sickness. The young man seemed shocked at the unfeminine conduct of his mother, and begged me to excuse the rude manner in which she answered me. For, says he, she is ignorant and beside herself, and does not know what she is saying or doing. Instead of expressing the least gratitude to Mr. S. for the attention bestowed on her son by some strange perversion of intellect, she seems to regard him and us as his especial enemies. Last night she ordered us from his room, and declared that her precious boy was not going to die like a heathen, surrounded by a parcel of heretics, and she sent off a man on horseback for the priest and for his uncle, the very man from whose house he fled, and whom she accuses of being the cause of her son's death. Michael anticipates the arrival of Mr. C., with feelings bordering on despair, and prays that God may end his suffering before he reaches Coburg. Last night Mrs. MacBride sat up with Michael herself, and would not allow us to do the least thing for him. This morning her fierce temper seems to have subsided, until her son awoke from a broken and feverish sleep, and declared that he would not die a Roman Catholic, and earnestly requested Mr. S. to send for a Protestant clergyman. This gave rise to a violent scene between Mrs. MacBride and her son, which ended and Mr. S. sending for Mr. B., the clergyman of our village, who, unfortunately, had left this morning for Toronto, and is not expected home for several days. 
Michael eagerly asked if there was any person present who would read to him from the Protestant Bible. This excited in the mother such a fit of passion that none of us dared attempt the task. I then thought of you, that, as a perfect stranger, she might receive you in a less hostile manner. If you are not afraid to encounter the fierce old woman, do make the attempt for the sake of the dying creature who languishes to hear the words of life. I will watch the baby while you are gone. She is asleep and needs no watching. I will go, as you seem so anxious about it. And I took my pocket Bible from the table. But you must go with me, for I do not know my way in this strange house. Carefully closing the door upon the sleeping child, I followed the light steps of Mrs. C along the passage until we reached the head of the main staircase. Then, turning to the right, we entered the large public ballroom. In the first chamber of many that opened into this spacious apartment, we found the object that we sought. Stretched upon a low bed, with a feather fan in his hand, to keep off the flies that hovered in tormenting clusters round his head, lay the dying Michael McBride. The face of the young man was wasted by disease and mental anxiety, and if the features were not positively handsome, they were well and harmoniously defined, and a look of intelligence and sensibility pervaded his countenance, which greatly interested me in his behalf. His face was deathly pale, as pale as marble, and his large sunken eyes shone with unnatural brilliancy, their long, dark lashes adding an expression of intense melancholy to the patient endurance of suffering that marked his final countenance. His nose was shrunk and drawn in about the nostrils, his feverish lips apart, in order to admit a free passage for the laboring breath their bright red glow affording a painful contrast to the ghastly glitter of the brilliant white teeth within. The thick black curls that clustered round his high forehead were moist with perspiration, and the same cold, unwholesome dew trickled in large drops down his hollow temples. It was impossible to mistake these signs of approaching dissolution. It was evident to all present that death was not far distant." An indescribable awe crept over me. He looked so tranquil, so sublime by suffering, that I felt myself unworthy to be his teacher. Michael, I said, taking the long, thin white hand that lay so listlessly on the coverlid, I am sorry to see you so ill. He looked at me attentively for a few minutes. Do not say sorry, ma'am. Rather say glad. I am glad to get away from this bad world. Young as I am, I am so weary of it. He sighed deeply, and tears filled his eyes. I heard that you wished someone to read to you. Yes, the Bible, cried he, trying to raise himself in the bed, while his eager eyes were turned to me with an earnest, imploring expression. I have it here. Are you able to read it for yourself? I can read, but my eyes are so dim. The shadow of death float between me and the world. I can no longer see objects distinctly. But, oh, madam, if my soul were light, I should not heed this blindness. But all is dark here. Laying his hand on his breast, dark is the grave. I opened the sacred book, but my own tears for a moment obscured the page. 
while I was revolving in my own mind what would be the best to read to him, the book was rudely wrenched from my hand by a tall, gaunt woman, who just then entered the room. Ugh! What do you mean by disturbing him in his dying moments, would you thrash? It's not the likes of you that shall trouble his soul. The priest will come and administer consolation to him in his last extremity. Michael shook his head and turned his face sorrowfully to the wall. Oh, mother, he murmured, is that the way you treat the lady? Lady or no lady, and I mean no disrespect, it is not for the like of her to take this on herself. If she will be reading, let her read this. And she tried to force a book of devotional prayers into my hand. Michael raised himself, and with an impatient gesture exclaimed, Not that, not that, it speaks no comfort to me. I will not listen to it. Mother, mother, do not stand between me and my God. I know that you love me, that what you do is done for the best, but the voice of conscience will be heard above your voice. I hunger and thirst to hear the word as it stands in the Bible, and I cannot die in peace unsatisfied. For the love of Christ, ma'am, read a few words of comfort to a dying sinner. Here again the mother interposed. My good woman, I said, gently pulling her back, you hear your son's earnest request. If you really love him, you will offer no opposition to his wishes. It is not a question of creeds that is here to be determined as to which is the best, yours or mine. I trust that all the faithful followers of Christ, however named, hold the same faith and will be saved by the same means. I shall make no comment on what I read to your son. The Bible is its own interpreter. The Spirit of God, by whom it was dictated, will make it clear to his comprehension. Michael, shall I commence now? Yes, he replied, with the blessing of God. After putting up a short prayer, I commenced reading, and continued to do so until night, taking care to select those portions of Scripture most applicable to his case. Never did human creature listen with more earnestness to the words of truth. Often he repeated whole texts after me, clasping his hands together in a sort of ecstasy, while tears streamed from his eyes. The old woman glared upon me from a far corner, and muttered over her beads, as if they were a spell to secure her against some diabolical art. When I could no longer see to read, Michael took my hand, and said with great earnestness, May God bless you, madam. You have made me very happy. It is all clear to me now. In Christ alone I shall obtain mercy and forgiveness for my sins. It is in His righteousness, and not any good works of my own, that will save me. Death no longer appears so dreadful to me. I can now die in peace. You believe that God will pardon you, Michael, for Christ's sake? But have you forgiven all your enemies? I said this in order to try his sincerity, for I had heard that he entertained hard thoughts against his uncle. He covered his face with his thin, wasted hands, and did not answer for some minutes. At length he looked up with a calm smile upon his lips, and said, Yes, I have forgiven all, even him. Oh, how much was contained in the stress laid so strongly and sadly upon that little word, him! How I longed to hear the story of his wrongs from his own lips, but he was too weak and exhausted for me to urge such a request. Just then Dr. Morton came in, and after standing for some minutes at the bedside, 
regarding his patient with fixed attention. He felt his pulse, spoke a few kind words, gave some trifling order to his mother and Mrs. C., and left the room. Struck by the solemnity of his manner, I followed him into the outer apartment. "'Excuse the liberty I am taking, Dr. Morton, but I feel deeply interested in your patient. Is he better or worse?' "'He is dying. I did not wish to disturb him in his last moments. I can be of no further use to him. Poor lad, it's a pity. He is really a fine young fellow.' I had judged from Michael's appearance that he had not long to live, but I felt inexpressibly shocked to find his end so near. On returning to the sick-room, Michael eagerly asked what the doctor thought of him. I did not answer. I could not. "'I see,' he said, "'that I must die. I will prepare myself for it. If I live until the morning, will you, madam, come and read to me again?' I promised him that I would, or during the night if he wished it. "'I feel very sleepy,' he said. "'I have not slept for many nights, but for a few minutes at a time.' Thank God, I am entirely free from pain. It is very good of him to grant me this respite. His mother and I adjusted his pillows, and in a few seconds he was slumbering as peacefully as a little child. The feelings of the poor woman seemed softened towards me, and for the first time since I entered the room she shed tears. I asked the age of her son. She told me that he was two and twenty. She wrung my hand hard as I left the room, and thanked me for my kindness to her poor boy. It was late that night when my husband returned from the country, and we sat for several hours talking over our affairs, and discussing the soil and situation of the various farms he had visited during the day. It was past twelve when we retired to rest, but my sleep was soon disturbed by someone coughing violently and my thoughts instantly reverted to Michael McBride, as the hoarse, sepulchral sounds echoed through the large, empty room beyond which he slept. The coughing continued for some minutes, and I was so much overcome by fatigue and the excitement of the evening that I fell asleep, and did not wake until six o'clock the following morning. Anxious to hear how the poor invalid had passed the night, I dressed myself and hurried to his chamber. On entering the ballroom, I found the doors and windows all open, as well as the one that led to the sick man's chamber. My foot was arrested on the threshold, for death was there. Yes, that fit of coughing had terminated his life. Michael had expired without a struggle in the arms of his mother. The gay broad beams of the sun were not admitted into that silent room. The window was open, but the green blinds were carefully closed admitting a free circulation of air, and just light enough to render the objects within distinctly visible. The body was laid out upon the bed, enveloped in a white sheet. The head and hands alone were bare. All traces of sorrow and disease had passed away from the majestic face that, interesting in life, now looked beautiful and holy in death, and happy, for the seal of heaven seemed visibly impressed upon the purple, pale brow. He was at peace, and though tears of human sympathy for a moment dimmed my sight, I could not regret that it was so. While I still stood in the doorway, Mrs. McBride, whom I had not observed until then, rose from her knees beside the bed. 
she seemed hardly in her right mind, and began talking and muttering to herself. "'Och, hon, he is dead! My fine boy is dead! Without a priest to pray with him, or bless him in the last hour, with none of his friends and relations to lament over him, or wake him, but his poor heart-broken mother! Och, hon, och, hon, that I should ever live to see this day! Get up, my fine boy, get up with ye! Why do you lay there? Older folk know you are abroad in the sunshine. Get up, and show them how supple ye are. Then, laying her cheek down to the cold cheek of the dead, she exclaimed amid broken sobs and groans, Oh, speak to me, speak to me, Mike, my own Mike, tis the mother that acts ye. There was a deep pause, when the bereaved parent again broke forth. Mike, Mike! Why did your uncle rear you like a gentleman to bring you to this? Och, hon! Och, hon! Oh, never did I think to see your head lie so low. My boy! My boy! Why did you die? Why did you leave your friends and your money and your good clothes and your poor old mother? Convulsive sobs again choked her utterance. She flung herself upon the neck of the corpse and bathed the face and hands of him who had once been her own with burning tears. I now came forward and offered a few words of consolation. Vain, all in vain. The ear of sorrow is deaf to all save its own agonized moans. Grief is as natural to the human mind as joy, and in their own appointed hour both will have their way. The grief of this unhappy Irish mother, like the downpouring of a thunder-shower, could not be restrained but her tears soon flowed in less violent gushes. Exhaustion rendered her more calm. She sat upon the bed and looked cautiously round. Hist! Did you not hear a voice? It was him who spake. Yes, it was his own sweet voice. I knew he was not dead. See, he moves. This was the fond delusion of maternal love. She took his cold hand and clasped it to her heart. Och, hon! He's gone and left me for ever and ever. Oh, that my cruel brother was here, that I might point to my murdered child and curse him to his face. Is Mr. C. your brother? said I, taking this opportunity to divert her grief into another channel. Yes, yes, he is my brother, bag says to him, an uncle to the boy. Listen to me, and I will tell you some of my mind. It will ease my sorrow. For my poor heart is breaking entirely, and he is there, pointing to the corpse, and he knows that what I am after telling you is true. I came of poor but decent parents. There was but the two of us, Pat Seedash and I. My father rented a good farm, and he sent Pat to school and gave him the education of a gentleman. My landlord took a liking for the boy and gave him the means to emigrate to Canada. This vexed my father entirely, for he had no one barring myself to help him on the farm. Well, by and by I joined myself to one whom my father did not approve, a boy he had hired to work with him in the fields, and he wrote to my brother, for my mother had been dead ever since I was a wee thing, to ax him in what manner he had best punished my disobedience, and he just advises him to turn us off the place. I suffered, with my husband, the extremes of poverty. We had seven children, but they all died of the fever and hard times, save Mike and the two weeny ones. 
In the midst of our distress, it pleased the Lord to remove my father, without softening his heart towards me. But he left my Mike three hundred pounds to be his when he came to a right age, and he appointed my brother Pat guardian to the boy. My brother returned to Ireland when he got the news of my father's death in order to get his share of the property, for my father left him the same as he did my son. He took my boy away with him to Canada in order to make a landed gentleman of him. Och, hon, I thought my heart would break and thin when he took away my sweet boy, but I was to live to see a darker day yet. Here a long burst of passionate weeping interrupted her story. Many long years came and went, and we never got the scrape of a pen from my brother to tell us of the boy at all at all. He might just as well have been dead for all we knew to the contrary, but we consoled ourselves with the thought that he would never go about to harm his own flesh and blood. At last a letter came, written in Mark's own hand, and a beautiful hand it was that same. The good Lord bless him for the trouble he took in making it so neat and easy for us poor folk to read. It was full of love and respect to his poor parents, and he longing to see them in Meriki, but he said he had written by stealth, for he was very happy entirely, that his father treated him hardly because he would not be a priest, and wanted to leave him to work for himself, and he refused to buy him a farm with the money his grandfather left him, which he was bound by the will to do, as Mike was now of age and his own master. When we got the word from the lad, We gathered our little all together and took passage for Kennedy, first writing to Mike when we should start, and the name of the vessel, and that we should wait him Coolburg, until such time as he came to fetch us himself to his uncle's place. But, oh, ma'am, our troubles only begun. My poor husband and my youngest boy died of the cholera coming out, and I saw their precious body cast into the salt, salt say. Still, the thought of seeing Mike consoled me for all my distress. Poor Pat and I were worn out entirely when we got to Kingston, and I left the child with a friend and come on alone. I was so eager to see Mike and tell him all my troubles, and there he lies. Oh, hon, my heart, my poor heart, it will break entirely. And what caused your son's separation from his uncle? said I. The woman shook her head. The treatment he got from him was too bad, but sure he would not distress me by saying out against my mother's son. Did he not break his heart and turn him dying and penniless on the whole world? And could he have done worse had he stuck a knife in his heart? Ah! She continued with bitterness. It was the gold, the dirty gold that killed my poor boy. His uncle knew that if Mike were dead, it would come to Pat as the next in degree. And he could keep it all to himself for the next ten years. This statement appeared only too probable. Still, there was a mystery about the whole affair that required a solution, and it was several years before I accidentally learned the sequel of this sad history. In the meanwhile, the messenger, dispatched by the kind Mr. S. to Peterborough to inform Michael's uncle of the dying state of his nephew, returned without that worthy. And with this unfeeling message that Michael McBride had left him without any just cause and should receive no consolation from him in his last moments. Mr. S. did not inform the poor bereaved widow of her brother's cruel message, but finding that she was unable to defray the expenses attendant on her son's funeral, like a true Samaritan, he supplied them out of his own pocket and followed the remains of the unhappy stranger. 
that Providence had cast upon his charity to the grave. In accordance with Michael's last request, he was buried in the cemetery of the English church. Six years after these events took place, Mr. W. called upon me at our place in Dural, and among other things told me of the death of Michael's uncle, Mr. C. Many things were mentioned by Mr. W., who happened to know him to his disadvantage. But of all his evil acts, he said, the worst thing I knew of him was his conduct to his nephew. How was that, said I, as the deathbed of Michael McBride rose distinctly before me? It was a bad business. My housekeeper lived with the old man at the time, and from her I heard all about it. It seems that he had been left guardian to this boy, whom he brought out with him some years ago to this country, together with a little girl, about two years younger, who was the child of a daughter of his mother by a former marriage, so that the children were half-cousins to each other. Elizabeth was a modest, clever little creature, and grew up a very pretty girl. Michael was strikingly handsome, had a fine talent for music, and in person and manners was far above his condition. There was some property to the amount of several hundred pounds coming to the lad when he reached the age of twenty-one. This legacy had been left him by his grandfather, and Mr. C. was to invest it in land for the boy's use. This, for reasons best known to himself, he neglected to do, and brought the lad up to the service of the altar, and continually urged him to become a priest. This did not at all accord with Michael's views and wishes, and he obstinately refused to study for the holy office, and told his uncle that he meant to become a farmer as soon as he obtained his majority. Living constantly in the same house, and possessing a congeniality of tastes and pursuits, a strong affection had grown up between Michael and his cousin, which circumstance proved the ostensible reason given by Mr. C. for his ill-conduct to the young people, as by the laws of his church they were too near of kin to marry. Finding that their attachment was too strong to be wrenched asunder by threats, and that they had actually formed a design to leave him and embrace the Protestant faith, he confined the girl to her chamber, without allowing her a fire during a very severe winter. Her constitution, naturally weak, sunk under these trials, and she died early in the spring of 1832, without being allowed the melancholy satisfaction of seeing her lover before she closed her brief life. Her death decided Michael's fate. Rendered desperate by grief, he reproached his bigoted uncle as the author of his misery, and demanded of him a settlement of his property, as it was his intention to quit his roof for ever. Mr. C. laughed at his reproaches, and treated his threats with scorn, and finally cast him friendless upon the world. The poor fellow played very well upon the flute, and possessed an excellent tenor voice. And, by the means of these accomplishments, he contrived for a few weeks to obtain a precarious living. Broken-hearted and alone in the world, he soon fell a victim to hereditary disease of the lungs, and died, I have been told, at a hotel in Coburg, and was buried at the expense of Mr. S., the tavern-keeper, out of charity. The latter part of your statement I know to be correct, 
and the whole of it forcibly corroborates the account given to me by the poor lad's mother. I was at Michael's deathbed, and if his life was replete with sorrow and injustice, his last hours were peaceful and happy. I could now fully comprehend the meaning of the sad stress laid upon the one word which has struck me so forcibly at the time, when I asked him if he had forgiven all his enemies, and he replied, after that lengthened pause, yes, I have forgiven them all, even him. It did indeed require some exertion of Christian forbearance to forgive such injuries. There's hope for those who sleep in the cold and silent grave, for those who smile, for those who weep, for the freeman and the slave. There's hope on the battle-plain, mid the shock of charging foes, on the dark and troubled main, where the gale in thunder blows. He who dispenses hope to all, withholds it not from thee. He breaks the woe-worn captive's thrall, and sets the prisoner free. End of chapter 11